Welcome to Notes from the Electronic Cottage. I'm Jim Campbell. One of the things we hear about many times a day in our COVID virus world is to practice social distancing. And lately, we've been hearing news of protests by people who think that, well, who knows exactly what they think, but they're clearly not happy with businesses being closed or in some places with beaches being closed or whatever. And so in state capitals across the country, crowds are showing up to express their discontent. Some of the folks at those protests stay in their cars and beep their horns and holler out their car windows. Maybe that's so they don't risk getting arrested or getting a ticket, or maybe they're just not completely convinced that the virus has been vanquished. But a lot of their fellow protesters crowd right up together, often without benefit of masks, perhaps understandably so. After all, if it's good enough for the president and the vice president, why isn't it good enough for just regular folks? In any event, there are very few reports of those protesters even getting a ticket in Augusta or Denver or Lansing, let alone being arrested. Meanwhile, the district attorney's office in Brooklyn, New York, announced on May 7, 2020, that it was going to prosecute 40 people who were arrested between March 17th and May 4th for failure to observe social distancing regulations. Of those who were going to be prosecuted, 35 were African-American, 4 were Hispanic, and 1 was Caucasian. But of course, that isn't really representative of the whole city of New York, is it? Well, in the entire five boroughs of New York, 68% of those arrested so far have been African-Americans, and 24% were Hispanic folks. About 6 or 7% were Caucasians. Is that representative of the population of New York City? Not even close. What about all those unmasked, crowding together protesters at assorted state capitals of late? Who were they? Well, they appeared to be maybe 95% Caucasian on news footage, and if there were any arrests, you could probably count them on one hand. Well, that is very interesting, some may say, and more than a little disturbing, but what, pray tell, does it have to do with the digital world? The answer is, perhaps surprisingly, a lot. One of the biggest trends in policing in this country these days is what's referred to as predictive policing, which is when artificial intelligence software algorithms predict areas where crime is more likely to occur so police can patrol those areas more often. Some programs even claim to predict which individuals are likely to commit a crime in the future. And once someone is arrested, other algorithms are available for magistrates and judges to use in setting bail and to decide whether an arrested person should even get bail. All of these artificial intelligence software programs have a few things in common. They're expensive for local governments or police departments to purchase. How they work is completely invisible to all but the people who designed them. And most of the time, even the software designers themselves don't really understand all of the internal workings of these programs as they supposedly continue to learn and improve themselves. And, oh yeah, they're based in large part on arrest records of different populations, so they are to put it politely, biased as all get out. 
Consider, for example, the arrest information for social distancing violations in New York City. It's that kind of information that will wind up being fed into these software packages, information the software will base its future predictions on. And that, as should be pretty obvious at this point, is going to create predictions that are, to put it politely, crappy. Or, as the title of a recent NYU Law Journal article on the subject put it, quote, dirty data, bad predictions. How civil rights violations impact police data, predictive policing systems, and justice, end quote. Written by scholars from the New York University School of Law, Microsoft Research, and the AI Now Institute, the article is freely available online and it's worth a read. It's 42 pages long, but just the abstract is enough to make a person wonder about just how smart these AI programs really are and how accurate their predictions are. Spoiler alert, the answer is not very accurate at all. Just for the fun of it, here are a few headlines from investigative reports on some of these predictive policing and or AI judicial recommendation software packages. From a PBS NewsHour column, quote, why big data analysis of police activity is inherently biased, end quote. Or from the investigative journalism service ProPublica, quote, machine bias, there's software used across the country to predict future criminals, and it's biased against blacks, end quote. Or from the online tech site Tector, quote, LAPD's failed predictive policing program is the latest COVID-19 victim, end quote. Perhaps it's worth looking at the following quote from Andrea Nil Sanchez, executive director of the AI Now Institute at New York University. She was testifying before the European Parliament on predictive policing. Perhaps it best summarizes the problem with this supposedly smart AI software. Quote, My testimony today will focus on the risks and harms associated with predictive policing systems. Despite what the term may suggest, predictive policing is neither magic nor a precise science that allows us to see into the future. Instead, predictive policing refers to fallible systems that use algorithms to analyze available data and aim to produce a forecasted probability of where a crime may occur, who might commit it, or who could be a victim. Left unchecked, the proliferation of predictive policing risks replicating and amplifying patterns of corrupt, illegal, and unethical conduct linked to legacies of discrimination that plague law enforcement agencies across the globe." End quote. In short, machines, even supposedly smart learning machines, need data in order to learn how to make predictions. If that data starts out being biased, then the machine learns to include those biases in its predictions. In the language of computer scientists in the old days, it's GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. This is really important for us to understand every day in our increasingly digital world, and particularly in these COVID-19 days when governments, health systems, and everybody and their brother are looking to big tech to somehow defeat the virus pandemic. If we want to adopt such tech systems, 
It's important that we know how they work and the effect their use will have on all of us, but particularly on those who are already living under vulnerable conditions of many kinds. We'll try to take a good look at how the coming COVID tracking systems will work so we can decide if we believe them and if we think their longer-term effects are worth the possible short-term gain. Right here on future editions of Notes from the Electronic Cottage. <laughs>